you realize that, okay, other people might be suffering silently. You just being nice to them and being kind to them, that little bit of human contact might seem relatively insignificant to you, but that could be a big thing to them. Hey there, my name is Sean and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives and we almost never talk about it. And when we do talk about it, many of us, including me, aren't very good at it. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and I hope better conversations with attempt survivors. And I want to thank all the attempt survivors who have joined me on this podcast since we launched back in July of 2020. And of course, a special thanks to everybody who listens. Also, thanks to our Patreon supporters. We don't have many, but we really do appreciate you helping us out. We do have some production costs and it all helps a bunch. So thank you so much for that. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to share your story, I'd love to talk. Please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com or on Facebook or Twitter at SuicideNoted. And remember, we are talking about suicide, so this may not be a good fit for everybody. Please take that into account before you listen. I do hope you listen because there is so much to learn. Now, I mentioned Patreon. Other ways you can help us out? Keep doing what you're doing. Listen to the podcast. Share it on social media. And you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Suicide Noted. And again, I know I I say it a lot, but I really, really do appreciate it. Today, I am talking with David. David lives in Virginia, and he is a suicide attempt survivor. So David in Virginia. All right, so David, you put into Google the word suicide. Why'd you do that? Well, I guess one of the things when, you know, I was depressed and and having thoughts, I found podcasts that you talked about depression and finding podcasts that talked about suicide was kind of an extension of that. Not everybody who feels this way, feels shitty, wants to hear that stuff. So you do, you feel some comfort in it. Right. I think hearing other people's experiences and being able to relate to other people rather than just hearing, Oh, here's advice. Um, right. How you should feel. And mm. oh, here's this like sugar coating or here's why you should be happy about your life mm. but just to be able to hear other people talk about like oh here's why i think my life sucks and is is not worth living anymore yeah and being able to relate to that it's amazing to me what i wonder what happened or why it is that our and not just our culture but maybe just culture in general really seems to have such a hard time with these conversations and does do the like you say, like the candy coating or the sort of quick fixes, there must be something to it or it wouldn't be so rampant, but I, it just is a head scratcher for me. It really is. Yeah. I well, I it. think part of the problem is, and at least from what I've seen about quote unquote professional treatment mm-hmm. is that depression and probably suicidality as well are treated as the problem rather than a symptom mm. of other problems. Like if somebody goes to the hospital and says, oh, I'm suicidal, immediately their job is to keep that person safe, keep other people around them safe, and they're just addressing that immediate problem. 
right. rather than saying, well, why do you feel like this? Like, what's going on in your life? Like, yeah. is there problems with relationships, problems mm-hmm. with your job, problems with your living situation, problems with medical or other other health issues? And just, just not digging into that and just tre- treating things on the surface. And I think that's why things don't get fixed and they, they recur and things simmer and then boil mm. up and go back down and boil up again. That makes total sense what you're saying. You are like me. We have this thing in common where uh, we are ideators. Yep. What is your experience with ideating, however you define that? Uh, the earliest I remember thinking about it was back in the spring of 2019. That was a result of things I was going through at the time, uh, big life changes and things going on with myself and my kids and, and, and that situation as a result of a separation and, and a divorce, mm-hmm. dealing with some, some pretty hard changes to, to swallow and, and, and fighting against those changes to try to have my life how I wanted it. You know, obviously you can't force someone to stay in a marriage that doesn't want to be in a marriage. I didn't really want to be in the marriage because it wasn't working, but right. I also didn't want to lose, uh, you know, significant amounts of time with my kids. And that's what ended up happening. That, that's what I've been fighting to get equal time with them over the past few years. Wow. So it's a few years of this ongoing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The, the custody and support stuff will be coming mm-hmm. up on, on three years now. Is there an end in sight? I guess the, the ultimate end is when the, uh, when the kids turn 18 and graduate high school, because then there's no more involvement by the state, but that's a long ways off. <laughs> right. I was hoping there'd be some resolution, but I'm a little naive with this, that world. Yeah. I guess the, the big issue with it is when somebody goes to the court and requests that the court determine custody and support, then it goes into the hands of the court, you know, the parties involved, you know, the mother and the father, potentially other people, family related, then it's, it's all up to the court and it's out of those people's hands. So you're, you're basically begging the court to, mm-hmm. to see things your way and to, and to rule on your behalf, which is, is very difficult. Man. So you had said in, in the spring of 2019 was sort of the first time you thought about this stuff. Right. So up until then, up and then you're in your late thirties, and up until then, never before. Right before that, I, I had had depression. I remember back when I was a teenager, you know, being at odds with my parents. They and I would fight and argue, and I remember having some, you know, bouts of depression throughout, you know, my twenties and thirties, life stuff and relationships, and you know, dis- disappointments with, oh, I thought my life was going to be this way, and it's not, or I thought a relationship would be this way and it's not just dealing with those i've heard it called an expectation gap where Mm. you have your expectations of how you want your life to be or how you thought it should have been and then how your life is and you look at that the difference between the two and sometimes the magnitude of that difference can be very depressing oh man yeah life happens 20s 13s 20s 30s um depression I don't mean to minimize, but we're limited by words, right? Sometimes. Right. Uh, but so something's changing. You, you, you're dealing with this separation. It's your second separation, but this yeah. time kids are involved. Yep. Yeah. My first marriage didn't have any kids, but the second marriage had, had two kids. So that dissolution of the, 
the marriage, I mean, the marriage dissolving, mm-hmm. it had been kind of in the works. You knew things were going downhill and happening, but the dissolution of the family and like losing time with my kids, that, mm-hmm. that I think was the, the bigger thing that really, that really triggered it. And in spring 2019, you, for the first time, you think about suicide. Right. And what is your, as best you can recall, what is your, what is your mind saying? What are you thinking? Essentially, just that things aren't going to get better, that it's, it's really bad now, and it's just going to continue this way. It's going to get worse. You're just going to have to go through life without having the good things you wanted, but dealing with bad things. And, and two, that, that other people are kind of taking what was yours, like, like my time with the kids, mm. my money that gets taken for, for mm. child support. It's like mm. that, that loss of control over your life and the loss of control about relationships with people that you care about. Yeah. From spring of 2019 till this moment, Mm -hmm. how often are you having those thoughts? Uh, It all depends on what's going on. A lot of it revolves around, around the legal battle um, Mm -hmm. with, with the custody and support and the divorce. Things really haven't gone my way. In, in, in both of those legal cases and just just feeling like you're being oppressed basically that no nobody's listening to you you're not getting fair treatment yeah. you're just having to deal with what other people are are forcing your life to be so how do you like how do you deal how do you cope so to speak without doing damage to yourself or somebody else or i'm i'm being presumptuous here you might have hurt other people i don't know a lot of people don't cope with that stuff. And you're here talking to me. You're doing something. Like, what do you do? I think one of the things that I did, because I work as an engineer. So one of the things is when things don't go right, mm-hmm. you turn to this troubleshooting mode where you try to find, mm-hmm. well, what's the cause of this problem? And then you try to, to eliminate that or change something that you know makes that not happen. Psychologically, it seems like it's a lot easier to, point out the problem or get to the root of the problem and think about the problem than it is to actually fix it. Like, mm. like you can get to that halfway point where you're like, Oh yeah, I see how my relationship with my parents and you know, the way that they dealt with their issues affected me. And you can kind of see like this progression of things and it all makes sense as, as a story. But then you get to this point where it's I'm here now in the present and I don't know how to change it. <laughs> Which yeah. is especially especially difficult when you know, certain choices have been taken from you. Like I don't get to decide how much time I spend with my kids, you know, and, and other other aspects of my life. You reach a point where you say, "Well, I wish my life was this way, but it's this way." It's really hard to accept. Sometimes these are my only children. You know, I'm probably uh, age 41. I'm probably not going to have more children now. So it's like coming to terms with that. People always talk about, oh, second chances and this and that. It's like, well, sometimes there isn't a second chance. It's just, this is the way it is and you've got to deal with it. Yeah. You have two kids? Yeah. Elementary and middle school age. Mm. So it's it's tough to be apart with them, from them as much as I am because the, the custody is is not equal. Mm-hmm. And that's that's one of my big gripes against the legal system and, and, and just my situation is that there's not equal custody and that that isn't a default within the law. I mean, yeah. I could see that there's some situations where 
if one parent traveled more for their job or if, you know, one parent wasn't as fit of a parent, but, mm-hmm. you know, unless there's some overriding circumstance, I don't see a reason why children should be with one, one parent more than the other. How often do you get to see them? So I've got them every other weekend. And then during the school year, which is about 38 weeks long, I think it's a, a majority of the year. I've got them one weeknight a week. Mm-hmm. And then in the summertime, I've got them two weeknights a week. So mm-hmm. it works out to about, I've got them about a third of the year. Mm-hmm. And then their mother has them about two thirds of the year. So it's, it's really only, I mean, from equal, if the year was split in half, it's like 182 and a half days. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really only 60 days that I'm kind of deficient from it being equal, mm-hmm. but it, it feels like so much. One of, one of the ways I kind of, I put it into perspective and I, I've, I've used this as an argument in, in some of my legal proceedings is that from when I, when they're with me during the school year and I drop them off on, on Wednesday mornings, I don't see them from Wednesday morning until the following Tuesday evening. So it's about six and a half days every other week that I don't see them for that stretch of time. Mm. And then in the summertime, it's a little bit less. Every other week, five and a half days stretch mm-hmm. that I don't see them. But then mm-hmm. the longest that they don't see their mother, it's only 48 hours when I, when I have them for a weekend. So yeah. that, it, it feels like a big discrepancy. Like I'm getting the short, the short end of that stick there. Yeah. And you can't make that time up. Yeah. Yep, that's that's the worst part. I mean, yeah, the money that's being taken because of the child support, it's like, yeah, that stinks. But it's like the irreplaceable time with my kids when they're young. That's that's the most hurtful thing. Mm. Your life has changed some since you got separated, right? Oh yeah. How do you feel your? How do you? (laughs) Yeah, sure. So I mean, how do you? You know, you work. You're an engineer. No doubt that takes up some amount of time. What else do you do to sort of get through your days? So I've always been kind of a tinker and a creative person. And that was actually kind of a coping strategy when, you know, in my 20s and 30s, when I was unhappy with, you know, my life or relationships, I would turn to, to doing creative projects or hobbies and just mm-hmm. kind of immerse myself in that to distract. And I think one of the things with, with creating stuff, it's that, okay, I can take something, I can change it, or I can make something that wasn't there. And so you have that feeling of control over something where you feel like, okay, maybe in other areas of my life, career or a relationship or something where it's, where it relies on other people and you don't feel like you have the control and you're not having your, like those expectations that you thought of how it was going to be without having Mm -hmm. those fulfilled. Mm -hmm. This is something that's totally under your control. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, something you're making, it's like, okay, you determine the design, you determine how it comes out, you determine how you're going to paint it or finish it or the shape that it's going to be. And I think that that was a, yeah, def, definitely a coping mechanism. A- along with that kind of hoarding was a coping mechanism as well. I would save lots of materials, uh, wood and metal and plastic, items that were broken where you say, well, you know, this is broken and it's not functioning as what it once was, but, you know, I can use the pieces of it to make something else. Mm. And I guess I've, I've always kind of been a, a, a thrifty person. And somebody that doesn't doesn't like to just waste things or, or throw things out. Did you ever get diagnosed with anything? So I've gone to a therapist starting in 2018 mm. a- after uh, getting separated, just to kind of like, oh, you know, I think I've got some issues of my own that mm-hmm. I need to work on. One of the things he he thought was that you know my behavior sounded like 
like bipolar disorder type type two, which I guess is the, is the less severe of the types. And what did ha- what happened after that? Did you did you do you think he's right or she's right? I don't know. The it's interesting because you know with mental stuff, it's not like oh they can do like with physical ailments where they can do an X-ray or mm-hmm. they can do blood work mm-hmm. or they can do some other type of objective test to determine okay yeah you've got this like with mental stuff it's very subjective one person is relying on somebody else's self-reporting you know of behavior and of feelings and of thoughts Mm -hmm. and i think there's so much crossover too between diagnoses like if you made a chart we said okay here's this diagnosis and then put another one right next to it and then made a bunch of little there's so much crossover of symptoms between things. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's hard to say that you could go to one psychologist or psychiatrist and they'd say, oh, it's this. And then right. you go to another one and they're like, oh, well, those symptoms mean this. And it's like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 100%. When people talk about, you know, well, if you have diabetes, you would treat it and you have a mental illness, you would treat it. I'm almost thinking, I get what the sentiment there. Yes. Yeah. But it's not quite the same thing, in part due to what you just said. In part, it's more complicated. It feels more complicated anyway. Yeah. I think one thing is it is helpful, like when you talk to somebody else, to have somebody else objectively looking at your patterns of behavior yeah. and saying, oh, yeah, you know, you routinely did this mm-hmm. when you were feeling this way. And maybe to treat it. I mean, there might be something in the treatment patterns, and perhaps it helps. Who knows? Right. Did you ever go on meds? No, I was always kind of resistant to that. I've never drank in my in my whole life. You've never um, had alcohol? I mean, I've had a sip of it here and there, like, you know, champagne at a wedding or something. But That's interesting. What What's behind that? I mean, that's wonderful, I guess, but why not? Uh, when I was a teenager, I was really into music. That was kind of my es- escape from, you know, my problems with my parents and, and my rebellion there. The music scene that I was in, part of it was like, being drug free wow as 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 kind of a rebellion against you know mainstream and against and against using that as an escape was that this might be a weird question but was that sort of a christian rock thing no it was uh they call it straight edge hmm not familiar what is that i guess a lot of like northeast philadelphia new york that area and even to like upstate new york there's a band called snapcase i think it was from buffalo hmm. or syracuse area and that was that was kind of a, a big theme in that in that music in, in the mid to late 90s. Very interesting. When you originally reached out, you emailed me. So you must have heard at least one episode. I've listened to several episodes, kind of pick and choose here and there. I'd start to listen to one. It's like, oh, this one's interesting. And I'd listen to the whole thing. <laughs> Other ones where I'd kind of listen to sure. some of it and be like, oh, I'm not really connecting right. with this with this person's vibe or their situation. Yeah. What compelled you to then either check the show notes or hear me say, email me. And then you actually did it. What, what, what was behind that? So actually I came across, there was another podcast mm-hmm. that you were a guest on. And there was something that you said on that podcast mm-hmm. that really struck a chord with me. And to paraphrase, it was, you're saying that we don't give enough credit to people that are toughing it out, going through life and getting out of bed every day when they're feeling like they don't want to be alive. Mm. Um, we, we put so much praise elsewhere in society for people doing things that are considered difficult or challenging. We kind of ignore the silent struggles of, of people that 
have something in their life where it's either so much suffering or so much lack of good things to look forward to that they're like, uh, I, don't, I don't feel like doing this anymore. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you reaching out about that. Yeah. And then wanting to, and then being open to talking with me about what you've gone through. I want to revisit, I want to go back for a moment, if I can, to your ideating. Sure. And I want to ask you how, in since spring 2019, until this moment, how close have you gotten? I think it, it depends a lot. So that it seems like ideating is a, a spectrum of intensity where it's just kind of like, oh yeah, I feel like crap today. I wish, wish I wasn't alive to, you feel like you're in this trapped in a corner. There's no way out trapped in a, a pit essentially that you know there's no way out of your suffering and there's no you know feasible end to your suffering your only choices are to stay alive and suffer or to end it and not suffer anymore mm. i guess it's 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 been all across that spectrum from yeah. just like oh yeah you know i'm having a shitty day to god you know this sucks and there's nothing i can do about it feeling like feeling like there's no hope yeah and that there's there's no reason to go on convincing yourself of that as we talk right now and you know i mean i would ask that you don't candy coat it you don't sound like much of a candy coder i used i used to be i used to oh, be yeah? a, a, a people pleaser and i would delude oh. myself and I, I don't know it's not not that it's been like a switch has been flipped but it's like maybe maybe a switch like a dimmer has been <laughs> right has been moved up gradually and now there's a, there's a light that's on it's like oh yeah you see things in life the, yeah. the way they are rather than the way you wish they were even though that sucks sometimes sometimes looking around and saying yeah this this is the way life is sometimes people do crappy things to you people take advantage of you being nice or you working hard or you achieving things in your life not that seeing things automatically fixes them mm -hmm. but coming to terms with the way they are you can kind of adjust the way you approach things and the way you approach people and the way you approach life when you, when you see how things really are rather than the way you wish they were. I, th I think I told that to my therapist one time, you know, cause I've, I've done a lot of thinking and talking and, you know, trying to figure out, well, why did my life get to this place where it's at? And, you know, why did I behave the way I did and being reactionary to things, repeating bad behaviors of my parents, this and that. Mm -hmm kind of taking the the blindfold off or the blinders off seeing everything that that doesn't automatically fix things yeah how are you right now or let's say in the last week on that spectrum that you talked about it's been okay i still sometimes i don't it's not ideating about suicide but mm -hmm. sometimes i get stuck in these thought patterns of i want to change something or i want to fix something about my life mm -hmm. that i don't necessarily have control about mm -hmm. and i'll i'll do a lot of thinking about that things that are out of control but mm -hmm. unfortunately sometimes and most of the time you can't just think something into uh, <laughs> reality <laughs> right for better or worse i think you're right yeah how many people in the world know that you've had these thoughts very few i'd, I'd say a handful <laughs> yeah yeah a couple family members and close friend or two and do they i imagine you're sharing it with them for a reason they're the kind of person who can be okay with it but how did they respond my parents were kind of freaked out i guess they they kind of have their own way of dealing with things in the in their lives i had one friend who she had a close girlfriend mm. whose whose father died by suicide 
and she was just incredibly open about about talking about it and, and listening and she had all she had also lost her father to cancer so i think she had a general a general sense of loss and and dealing with loss and and, mm. and death that she was open to talking about i've not done any research all anecdotal conversations so this is all speculative but i think that one of the main top reasons why people end up taking their own life is that they don't have anyone to talk to. Yeah. yeah. Somebody, somebody that can just listen and not judge you and say, Oh, well, this is your fault for getting to this place in your life. I think a lot of times people get to that point and I can't say, you know, Oh, it's a hundred percent their fault or it's a hundred percent society's fault or others fault because there's so many factors, sure. but a lot of times it seems like there's this kind of perfect storm where Maybe there's family problems or relationships problems or health problems or somebody starts, you know, getting in trouble with the law and it's like things just kind of snowball and escalate. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, people react to situations in certain ways and that can make it worse. Yep. When I've talked about this before, both on the podcast and other places in my life of even really well-intentioned people in our lives. And they're not always well-intentioned, but even well-intentioned, they just say shit that doesn't help. Right. Often. Often. Yeah. Like people will say, well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be depressed or you shouldn't be suicidal because you've got, and then they put in, they insert some good, some good thing that they see that you have like, Oh, well, you've got this significant other, you've got this relationship, you've got kids, you've got a job. Right. Uh, you're intelligent. Uh, right. You know, you've got your health. You're a nice person. You know, what, whatever that good thing is that they see, they don't see that that doesn't just automatically eclipse uh, the bad things or, or the lack of good things or, or the way you think things should be. You know, that, that gap between what you see as a happy life and what your life is like now. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we could get a whole other podcast about listening and I don't know how people define that word. And there's all kinds of different adjectives people put before it. So like reflective listening and authentic listening, radical listening. The problem, one of the problems from my point of view is it's not just listening. It's how to engage. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, not, Listening is a huge component of that, but people don't engage in ways that are helpful. Right. Sometimes people try, try to be too helpful. They try, they try to solve your problem and say, oh, well, you should, you should do this. Or you should do that. Right. Right. Um, when really sometimes people just need to be listened to right. and say, hey, I'm feeling like this because, you know, this aspect of my life. And what they really need is somebody to not to say like, oh, well, here, do this or do that. But just somebody right. to say, hey, that sucks. Like, yeah. and, and not only that sucks, but I can see why you feel that way. Yeah. Because a lot of times I think people, they just ex- expect that like happiness is the norm and that if somebody isn't happy or isn't content, then, mm. oh, there's, some, there's something wrong with that person or there's something wrong with that person's life and it needs to be fixed. But mm. I mean, really, when things go bad in your life and you're feeling bad, it's like it's, it's a normal reaction to feel that way. Yeah. And I think society is so or at least there's kind of a, an unspoken message that, you know, through advertising and yep. TV shows and everything else that, oh, you, you're supposed to be happy. You're supposed to have. And if you're not there, then, oh, something's wrong that you're not at that, that mm-hmm. state. Right. 
and it's something that needs to be fixed. Yeah. And I don't know what the answer is to somebody who's coming from that point of view, even if they care about you. I don't know where that conversation begins, but what you pointed out a few things that are spot on, right? It just, that sucks and mean it. And it and sounds think, like, you know, the, these little things that, they, mm, yep. And I think there's kind of a misunderstanding too, where people think, oh, well, you're either happy or you're sad, like two states. I think you can have things in your life that you're happy about. Of course. But, the, but then also have things that you're disappointed at the same time. Yeah. You know, and that those, those two emotions can, can exist at the same time. Yes. It seems like more and more people have a hard time with that. Yeah. That em- emotion is not just like a one dimensional line and you're right. either at somewhere along that line. It's like, no, it's, it's multidimensional. Like, of course you could feel, yeah. okay, I'm happy about my job, but my relationship with my spouse or significant other is, is down the tubes or something, or, you know, I'm having health issues and that's right. You know, causing major problems in my life. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how you'd ever be in the world and not have some sort of multidimensional. I mean, I just don't get that, but maybe that's possible. I guess I don't understand that, but perhaps, yeah, we're human. Yep. Uh, When you, if you've heard the podcast, you know, there is a handful of questions I tend to ask. One of them revolves around myths. Mm -hmm. Are there any that you want to dispel or bust, so to speak? Well, I guess so. One of the things when I when I had first contacted you and you asked me about potentially being on the podcast, mm-hmm. I felt like I had to give a disclaimer that oh, I'm not an attempt survivor. Mm-hmm. I'm an ideation survivor. So maybe maybe that's a myth that if you're ideating but not attempting, it's not that serious. Um, yep. And as we talked about before, I think ideation is kind of this spectrum with varying degrees. You know, depending on your mental state. And then possibly coupled with the physical state too, mm-hmm. you know, it could, it could be varying degrees of severity. And then also the, the myth, I think a lot of people think that are feeling this way, it's my fault. Mm. There's a lot of time, an immediate sense that, oh yeah, like I've done something bad in my life to deserve this, the choices I've made or the person I've been or how I treated other people. And I think too, a lot of times people will blame themselves because mm-hmm. they feel like, well, if I say that I did this and then it caused this, then there's still some sense of some sense of logic and control in the world. Like you can do something and something else happens. But a lot of times in the world, it's like you do something and you know that might increase the chances of something happening, mm-hmm. but it doesn't necessarily guarantee it. You could exercise and eat great, but then some freak thing that pops up, you know, yep. at whatever age. And I think that that's kind of a, a hard thing to come to terms with. For for certain people, but mm. I guess especially me because I I remember in in high school in geometry where you'd learn something and then you could take that theory or whatever law of mathematics and then apply it to something else. Mm-hmm. So like th- things would build on each other and say like, well, if this, then that. Mm. So much of life is not a if this, then that. There's a lot of there's a lot of randomness in life. Mm, yep. And it's, it's difficult to deal with that because we feel like things are out of control and, you know, that makes it difficult for us to, to have the lives that we wish we would have. So when you think about your life, comparing it like today to spring 2019, or, or maybe a little earlier when that started, is there more control or you're just dealing with it a little differently? Or perhaps you're not. I think I'm dealing with it differently. I think one of the big things I've 
kind of come to terms with is this difference between the way you want things to be mm. and the way things really are, and then how you approach life based on that. Because if you approach life assuming that, well, if I do this, then this will happen, mm-hmm. or society is a certain way, or people are a certain way, and you behave or take actions, assuming that. So you're, you're putting something into a system, expecting that if you put something in, you'll get something back out on the other side. But really, if the system works differently, then you're going to be continually disappointed by what ends up coming back to you, coming out of the system. The biggest shift, I think, is just how I'm approaching things. Just realizing that, yeah, there's, there's a lot of crappy stuff in life. And there's a lot of crappy people in the world. No amount of you trying to convince them that they should see things your way or act you know, the, the way you would want them to act is going to change. Yeah, that's a huge one, man. Yeah, I mean, my, my parents are in their yep. are in their lower 70s now. And mm-hmm. I've kind of just said, you know, well, they're, they're probably not going to change their, change their ways at, at this point. So I have, to, I have to adjust my relationship with right. them to do that rather than to keep beating my head against the wall and saying, well, I wish my relationship with my parents was like this. But yeah. it's, it's not. I, I ask guests what they think um the future holds specifically will they try again you haven't tried so i'm not sure how to frame this but i do want to ask about what you think of the coming months and years let me leave it at that i'm sure the ideation will probably come up again i'll fall into thought patterns that'll say like oh life sucks and Mm -hmm. it's not going to get better it's only going to get worse you know i'm going to get older you know there's possibilities that i could get sick and have nobody to be there for me and major problems to come up kind of reached a point of you feel like life is so ridiculous that you're just like all right well whatever like you stop trying to it's almost like a ship in a storm you're still trying to steer the ship in the storm but you realize that it's like this is not doing any good take your hands off the wheel or take your hands off the rudder i mean obviously i'm not totally taking my hands off i'm still going to work and taking care of my kids and doing chores around the house and things but yeah, I mean, just coming to terms with the way life is and saying, okay, I'm driving myself crazy trying to, to over-control things that I can't control, even though it sucks the, the way I'm being treated by other people, you know, and the things I see that the, they're taking from me and, and taking advantage of me. And I read uh, somebody had interviewed a rape survivor. That person said, I can spend the rest of my life, you know, dwelling on what happened, but when I'm doing that, I'm giving my time and I'm giving my life to that person that hurt me. Mm. So they made a decision that, okay, I'm not going to dwell on this. It's like, what's happened has happened. I need to get on with my life, which is, yeah. is, is difficult to do in a situation when you feel like an injury is not in the past. It's not something did to you, somebody did something to you and now it's done. You feel mm. like, oh, something, somebody is still doing something. They're still hurting you. It seems like a topic that's not really covered much Mm -hmm. in kind of the self-help mental health realm Mm. is, I mean, people talk about healing from trauma and healing from injuries, but it doesn't seem like there's much talk about what do you do when you're still experiencing an ongoing trauma Mm -hmm. or some ongoing oppression where you feel like you're being controlled, you're being taken advantage of. I guess that's something I'd like to see more or talked about in, in mental health circles is, mm. is, is ongoing trauma. 
what can be done with ongoing trauma uh, approaches for, for talking about and, and dealing with that. Yeah. hundred percent. When you heard the podcast and then you reached out and then we were planning to meet and talk, which we did and we're doing, was there some other things, anything else that you wanted to talk about? Yeah. I, I kind of made a list of, of oh, bring it on <laughs> over, over the last couple of weeks. We've hit, we've hit a good a good bit of them. One thing I, I came across in kind of my in, informal research to things in the summer of 2018, I actually ended up going to a hospital because I felt like I had like a major depressive episode and I needed some kind of some kind of help. My expectation when I went there was that oh I'm going to get intense therapy and get to like really talk through all my problems with somebody. What ended up happening was very different from what what my expectation and my hope was. It was kind of a little bit of insight into the way that the medical community approaches mental health and approaches mental health crises. Mm-hmm. And the very first thing they did they did was they look at the physical things. You know, they take your blood pressure, heart rate and check all kinds of physical things, blood work, things like that to make sure nothing is physically wrong. Mm. You know, then they ask you, you know, a series of questions, this and that. And what ended up happening in my situation, they didn't even, they didn't have, I don't think they had any kind of staff psychologist or staff psychiatrist at the hospital, but I ended up video chatting with somebody that was at some type of central facility somewhere. Really, I was disappointed with, with the outcome because basically what they told me was they said, well, keep keep going to your your regular counselor uh, once a week, and mm-hmm. we're also going to prescribe you some some fairly mild antihistamine based sleeping pills to mm-hmm. to try to help you sleep better. I guess it, it could it could have been much worse. I, you know, I've heard mm-hmm. horror stories of people that have been you know either voluntarily committed or involuntarily committed. You know, and the giant hospital bills mm-hmm. uh, that yeah. result from those stays, you know, thousands of dollars. So I guess maybe maybe I was lucky to get away with, you know, whatever the couple hundred dollars of emergency room visit cost Mm -hmm. on that day. But I think probably the biggest disappointment from that is just feeling like, Oh, like nobody really cares. Yep. You you felt so alone already. And -hmm. like you were having to deal with so much hardship in life alone already that you're just like, Oh, uh, like, I'm on my own. Like I've got to do this on my own, which is not necessarily true. It's just that that avenue that I tried to pursue didn't work. Right. You know? and, and you may not go back next time. Yeah. Yep. You may not tell your friend to go back if he or she's having a problem or go in the first place. Right. I mean, that, those experiences, there's kind of a fallout from them if they don't go so well, I think. A takeaway from that is that's not your only option. There's, there's friends, yeah. you know, if, if you've got close friends, you feel like if, yeah, if potentially you've got your, your boss at work, that, that was one person I actually talked to. And it mm. was interesting because I, I kind of felt like I needed to tell them like what's going on with, you know, mental health stuff. And then also like legal stuff when it needed to be out of the office for, for court dates and things. It was interesting because I thought I was just going to kind of gloss over some things, but we ended up having some in-depth conversations about stuff because he ended up getting divorced from his first wife and had kind of some, some rocky stuff with, mm. with the custody there and, and issues with the court system. So it was interesting because we kind of we kind of bonded and shared, shared stories over that. 
So sometimes there's people that you talk to, yeah, you know, not expecting that you're going to get support mm. and and understanding from that 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 can happen, you know, and the reverse could happen too. Like you might go to somebody expecting, oh, well, this is such and such person in my life, you know, they should be compassionate and understanding, but you might not get the response that you want. So maybe the lesson there is to try to talk to multiple people, and if you feel like one person is not you know, understanding you or, mm. uh, or listening to you, like the way you need to be listened, that you have other options and should, can try other options. And another takeaway I think is be that person for others. Right. Yep. And I think that's a big change that's happened in my life. I used to be, I still am kind of a control freak a little bit, mm-hmm. but I think I've gotten a lot more compassionate because of things that I've experienced you realize that, okay, other people might be, be suffering silently and you just being nice to them and being kind to them, being patient and not trying to rush them or just expecting something out of them just to take a few minutes and, and talk to them about even what seems like mundane stuff might not be so mundane to them. Yeah. That little bit of human contact you spend with a coworker, somebody you see in a store, somebody you inter- interact with throughout the day might seem relatively insignificant to you but that could be a big thing to them. Good point. Yeah, man. When you go through some stuff, it can change you. Yep. 100%. What else is on that list? I guess another thing I've kind of come to realize is that recognizing the difference between like physical pain Mm. and emotional pain, I guess as humans, we're conditioned to avoid physical pain in order to survive, you know, like, oh, it's cold out. Like, okay, well, this is like, an uncomfortable thing. I should find find a way to get warm. Oh, I'm hungry. I should find a way to get food. I'm thirsty. I should find a way to get water. Like avoiding these these negative feelings. But it feels like nowadays, at least in modern society, it seems like our physical needs are relatively easily met. Having food, having water, having you know a home to live in that keeps the rain and the cold and, and the elements away. But it seems like there's a lot. We've kind of traded those difficulties in meeting our physical needs into difficulties meeting our emotional needs. People that listen to us, you know, having a sense of community and belonging. I think a lot of people struggle with with being isolated. I know, I know, I do. Ninety nine percent of my my human contact is relative minority of the time that I'm with my kids, or it's through you know my interactions at work. A lot of my days, it's like I'm just I'm working alone on on projects and things. And then I have sporadic communications with other people about, about things. Some of it's face-to-face, but a lot of it's, a lot of it's email where it's kind of impersonal words on a screen. Yeah. I don't want to use the word epidemic incorrectly, but there is an epidemic of loneliness that is really fucking bad. Yep. Doing a lot of damage to a lot of people. I don't know if that's the right word, but you know, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, even even people that where you'd say like, oh, how could this person be be lonely? So, say somebody's married, somebody has kids, they have extended family. Even those people can can feel lonely, can feel isolated if they yeah. feel like somebody doesn't understand them, doesn't understand how they think and feel and their goals and their values. Like they could just kind of be going through the motions without having that that understanding and that sense of belonging. There is a great mechanism that humans have in our communication to find out if somebody is indeed feeling lonely or to find out what someone might actually need in a conversation and not make any assumptions. And we jump to trying to fix them, right? We were talking about earlier. 
And that mechanism is you ask them. That's all you need to do. Not all you need to do. You can ask people. One can be asked. You, we can ask other people how we can help them. Are you lonely? You just don't do it very often. Right. There's a little bit too of a tendency where even if somebody was lonely or if somebody was feeling depressed, there's kind of a, almost a knee-jerk reaction for people to say, oh, I'm fine. Like they don't want to draw attention to their, their, their life, their situation not being quote unquote yeah. good or, or normal. There's kind of a sense of shame. What, what have you done that has made your life not be good? You know, I think a lot of people assume that if, if, I, if I admit to not being okay, then there's going to be this, this stigma that goes along with it. This, this goes back to this challenge that people seem to have of engaging, listening and engaging in ways that aren't harmful. Like just being able to be there for somebody. I mean, in my take, this is obviously only my, my perspective, but somebody who responds that way, says, no, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, probably has had enough people in their life, whoever they are, family, friends, coworkers, strangers, who said those things, those things that are not helpful. You do it enough time, of course, somebody's going to be like, no, nah, I'm fine. They don't want right. to deal with that shit. So this becomes this larger issue that, yeah, what you, yeah, 100%, I'm fine. Because I don't want to hear the bullshit that's about to come my way. If you don't get the connection and the understanding that you're looking for, then you kind of say, okay, well, this is this is not working. When I when I tell somebody how I'm feeling, yeah, and and I don't get the response and the compassion that I'm looking for, then it's like, okay, well, don't don't bother. I will say, um, I don't have numbers. I would, I, I'm guessing here, educated guess that most people do want to talk about it. Yeah, you know, they'll bite at you a little bit to to test you. And I don't know what the solution is. I'm not suggesting anything in particular, but I do think people are dying to be heard. Yeah. You know, I think if you enter those conversations with, with love and, and some skills, like we, we know people who have, are well-intentioned sometimes don't realize they're saying these harmful things. So learning a little bit, I don't think it takes too long for most people to come around when they need something like that. You know, if you were really thirsty for water, eventually you're going to drink some water. I don't know yeah. if that's the best analogy, but we just got to be there. I think potentially a way that you could approach somebody rather than asking them, are you doing okay? Like you, you having problems and stuff is sometimes sharing your story yep. so that you make yourself vulnerable first Yep. by, by sharing things that put you, put you out there and, and, and expose you. Yep. And then they might feel comfortable to say, Hey, Oh, you know, I felt like that before. For example, yep. like when I, when I shared with my boss about what I was going through, Mm -hmm. with, with issues with the courts and, and custody and stuff. And, you know, and he shared his, his story. Right. And not doing it in a way to say, I totally understand everything you're going through and not doing it in a way only as it's like, sometimes people will share these things and say, and it got better for me. It'll get better for you. Like, you don't have to do that. I think right. what you're saying, if I understand is just to say, Hey, I've gone through something really fucking hard. I just, and that's an opportunity to sort of bond or share. Right. That's kind of what the podcast is. It's it's been people sharing their stories so yeah. that other other people can listen to them, and that maybe other people would feel comfortable coming out and, tell, and telling their story, whether that's telling it on the podcast or telling it to a friend, a coworker, mm -hmm. uh, a counselor. There's lots of options. Yeah, that's a part of it for sure. And that's why sometimes the conversations are, you know, some of the stuff we talk about isn't what most people talk about. Because we don't talk about it. And there's a lot of people out there who need to hear, oh, okay, this person is still thinking about ending their lives. 
All right. Well, not talking about it doesn't make that go away. So we might as well talk about it. And I know there are people out there who feel that way. Yeah. And I want them to know that you're not alone. And, you know, does that really change anything? I don't know. But yeah. And I think normalizing people's reactions to mm-hmm. bad things in their life. It's like, yeah, you, you should feel like that. You shouldn't feel like, oh, you had to overcome something that was out of your control. That's a logical, very reasonable response. You went through this very hard thing. Yeah. And people freak out. Oh my God. Yeah. When I, when I was doing some informal research into depression and, and what causes depression, one mm. of the things I came across was something called the behavioral shutdown model of depression. It attempts to explain depression as an evolutionary adaptation. So b- before modern society, when we were quote unquote living out in the wild, we were trying to get food get water, stay away from danger and cold and other things that would uh, make us sick or kill us. Uh, And we'd have to expend energy to do these things, get our physical needs met. If we're expending energy, but we're not finding food, we're not finding water, the the body goes into this this state of depression to say, okay, well, you're you're burning calories trying to Mm. get these things that you want, but you know, you're just, you're wasting energy. So it says, okay, well, let's, let's just sit still. And, and conserve energy and wait wait for things to change. You know, maybe you're waiting to like your tribe to find you again or something if you're lost or you're waiting for a rainstorm to bring water, or, you know, the weather to change or something. And I think now we've almost kind of come to an emotional state like mm. that. We're going through the motions. We're going through our day. We're getting up. We're going to work. We're going to school. We're doing chores. We're paying the bills. We're doing all this other stuff, you know, expending all this this effort and this energy, but we're not getting our emotional needs met. Mm-hmm. So you get to this point where you're like, why why am I doing all this if I'm not getting what I'm after, if, mm-hmm. if I'm not a- attaining that goal? We can almost shut down emotionally instead of physically and say, well, this is stupid to keep to keep going on because. I'm not getting what I need emotionally. That makes sense to me. And I guess the the depth of that, or the, the deepest depth of that is saying, okay, well, my life isn't the way I want. It's not going to be the way I want. So mm. why don't I just quit now? Because mm. I think we all know that at some point, our lives are going to end. Yeah. No, nobody's going to live forever. But you get to that point where you say, okay, well, life has sucked in the past to some degree, and it sucks to some degree now. And then, you know, if you extrapolate that into the future and say, oh, it's only going to get worse or it's going to continue to be this bad, you're making a judgment call to say, like, I do or don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. And I will go back to your original email or that quote. I just think a whole lot of people, they're struggling, but I give them a lot of credit, man, for trying. Right. They're struggling. They're fighting. They're fucking fighting, man. And so good for you. You know, I don't judge people for any choice they make. And that's a little controversial, maybe. I mean, whatever the choice is, but I just admire people who keep fighting. So, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you have to find, even though it seems like there's big things that are bad in your life or there's mm. there's big suffering in your life, mm. sometimes if you can find little motivations to keep you going. I remember several weeks ago, I, w- I was helping one of my kids with, with math homework. Mm. It was word problems where you had to read the word problem, basically fi- figure out what the math problem was in the word problem. And I, I sat down with them and, and helped them figure it out. That connection, sharing that experience was something really special. And I, I, I recognized that in the moment. Mm. 
I was actually going to ask you before we before we part ways, what was something you enjoyed doing with your kids? But that's at least one of them, right? At least one of the yeah. Yeah. And then just trying to do little creative things with them to sh- share knowledge and just to play and, you know, let them be kids. I remember, you know, when, when I was a kid, I was it felt like I was so focused on wanting to be an adult and wanting to impress people and, you know, wanting to be a straight A student. I want I want them to to enjoy the time being a kid and, and not worry so much about being an adult and then potentially be disappointed <laughs> when they reach adulthood. I bet there's a lot of guys, I don't know if this is probably, I don't know if it's going to make you feel any better. I don't think so, but there's a lot of guys who are struggling who probably understand to some degree what you're going through, you know, just dealing with the kid thing. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of times too, women tend to maintain a lot more friendships and social circles. Men, a lot of times their their family is their their social circle or their main social interaction you know when divorce happens and the, the splitting of of child custody and whatever mm. arrangement happens it's like they've lost that that main social structure that they had you know Obviously. they might have they might have friends but right. a lot of times if you know somebody is that age most of those friends they kind of have their own families their own kids got their own couples friends right right yeah well that that's i guess that's another thing too is sometimes if yeah some, somebody's friends with with a couple, you know, that couple might kind of gravitate towards one of the two, <laughs> the two people that yeah. got divorced or split up. I don't know much about research and science. And I do know that guys our age are, I think, the fastest growing demographic of people who are taking their own life. And don't quote me on that. It's a high number. I don't know the exact demographic, but it's like, I don't know, 30s, 40s or 40s, 50s. And I think there's a few reasons for that, but some of them probably, and I'm, I'm speculating and just speculating, but I think what you just said is part of a larger problem for sure. It's this combination of you're not at an age anymore where you have kind of built in social things. Yeah. Uh, like when, when you're in school, yeah. you're surrounded by all these people yeah. that are your age and you're, you're kind of in classes with them and you're in gym and maybe doing sports with other people or in after school activities. But yeah, right. when, when you get to into your thirties and forties, it's kind of just, you're out in the world and your interactions during the day might be the coworkers you see at your job. And that if you go to a, a store to go grocery shopping or something, you might right. not even talk to people, but just see people, you know, that, that could be your, the cycle that just repeats over and over. Yeah. You know, you go, you go to work five days a week and then you kind of on up. your own on the weekend and on evenings. It adds up. And I know you're not a drinker, but some people, one of the things they do, including me to lubricate that pain, have a few drinks that gets, that adds up. Sometimes that turns into other stuff. You know, it just, it adds up. The other thing, which doesn't apply to me, I just feel like is, is, is important to say in terms of men, middle-aged men, and that demographic with respect to suicide is just access to guns because guns right. are really effective ways to kill yourself. Um, I can say that without giving anyone an idea because they know that. Right. Um, so that's another thing, but that's probably a very different conversation. But these things add up and we've got a lot of guys uh, who are not alive. Right. Because, um, because of that isolation and because they had no one to talk to. And sometimes when you talk, when you talk to yourself or talk to yourself in your own head, mm. it's, it's easy to convince yourself that, yeah, this sucks and it's not going to yeah. get better. And, 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 and I'm doing all this work to be in a life that I don't want going to work, going grocery shopping, doing chores, laundry and dishes, and 
just the day after day stuff that just feels like it wears you down. Yeah. And so you could see why people would say like, fuck it. I'm not, excuse me. I'm not doing that stuff anymore. What's the point? Right. I understand that. And then if you, and however you define mental illness, that's a big word. But if you're struggling with stuff and you're alone, you could see how that could rather easily sort of spin out of control. Yeah. If you don't have people regularly, even in your life to say, Hey, doesn't seem like you're doing too well. You know, just whatever. Right. Start to really get dangerous. It really can. And I think too, that as, as humans, we evolved to be around other humans. Yes. And I think there, there might be something brain chemistry wise that when we're deprived of that human contact, Mm -hmm. it kind of messes with our, our brain chemistry, those neural networks. Feels that way. Yep. Sure. (laughs) Speaking about isolation. I -hmm. mean, that, that was kind of my situation kind of still is my situation. When I got out of high school and got out of college, I really didn't maintain a lot of social relationships. I kind of put all my eggs into one basket. When I was married, it's like I relied on my marriage as my social interaction. Even through that, like I didn't I didn't really have my own friends. It was just people that were friends with my wife were the people that we spent time with. So when that relationship went away, all those other interactions went away as well. And it was that it was just me. And then also I've got, I've got family, but they're all, they're physically uh, far away. My, my closest family is probably, you know, an eight, nine hour drive away. Mm. So we, we don't see each other very often. And I guess the other thing too, is even with family, I've never had a real deep relationship where we would talk about emotional stuff. And mm-hmm. a lot of it was superficial talking about like, oh, what are you doing? Like, how's work going? What are you doing around the house? What are you doing with the kids? That kind of stuff. But there wasn't a lot of talk about values and feelings and emotions, the deeper stuff in life. Yeah. You kind of feel like, oh, I'm this this oddball. Like yeah. older, older guy with unmarried, sees my kids part of the time. Uh, at least in my case, I don't really have friends that I spend time with. I mean, I've got a, a coworker that occasionally he and I will go out to lunch or we'll just kind of chit chat about stuff at work but Mm -hmm. yeah for the most part i really i really don't have friends that i spend time and it's 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 hard too i guess later in life making friends people have so much of their lives kind of already defined and a lot of their time spoken for already with with marriages with kids with uh like activities for their kids you know so people get involved in you know church and hobbies and other things you you almost feel like you don't want to bother people because you feel like, oh, they've already got their life. There's not like, I don't fit into, I don't fit into their life. So I've just got to stay over here. Yeah. In, in, in my little world. Yeah. So if you're getting older and you're single man or woman, but I, I, I imagine there might be some differences. I'm not sure. It's a sort of not uncommon, but a rather unique thing that I don't think we talk much about. Right. Yeah. I think that the gender thing, it seems like at least in the, in the, in the, in the realm of divorce, it seems like women tend to do better, I guess, emotionally in mm. situations like that because they've kind of cultivated friend groups or like groups of coworkers that are supportive. Whereas men, there's kind of a sense of shame, like, oh, you weren't you weren't man enough to to make the relationship 
work oh, yeah? or you know mm-hmm. you, you you did something that there's like a sense of shame and blame that i think a lot of men take on when when relationships end and marriages end or families end that mm. they somehow were defective or, or didn't do something right and, and they tend to internalize that yeah and you know for me i'm coming from another angle never been married it's almost there's like a different kind of defect mm-hmm. how can you not attract somebody you know, like you're like, I don't know. I mean, I tried. It didn't work out. I, you know what I mean? I don't know. Does that mean I'm broken? I, I don't think so. But Right. My, my brother, who's two years older than I am, has, yeah. has never been married, doesn't, doesn't have any kids. He's kind of in that category where, and I think after a certain point, he just kind of, he gave up on relationships yep. because he felt like, oh, I'm trying and I'm not getting, not getting back what I'm looking for, that it was just kind of, he said, okay, well, I'm just going to focus on my life and myself yep. and doing hobbies and, and creative things that, that make me feel happy without relying on somebody else. But yeah, I, I definitely see what you mean about, right. There's, there's, I guess the two categories of like the people that tried and failed and then the people right. that didn't <laughs> achieve some goal of society to be married, to have a family, to have those things. Well, I appreciate you. I, I appreciate this conversation. Yeah. Dudes out there, dudes. I don't have any specific words. David, yeah, if you okay. have words, here's your opportunity. I just want you to know you're not alone. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of a big message to people. People that are that are ideating feel mm. like they're facing this alone and that there's nobody that can help them. There's mm. nobody that can understand them. And I've, I've certainly been in that in that state, in that mindset, I don't want to be one of those advice people that says like, "Oh, well, all you got to do is this." Sure. Um, but sometimes just just sitting with that uncomfortable feeling, and just saying, "Yeah, this is this is how I feel," just letting it be. Like sometimes when you're out and it's it's cold, and you know, oh, yeah, it's cold now, but it's it's not going to be cold forever. If you have a coat, put the fucking coat on. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I mean, tr- try try to do things that that make you feel better things that that distract you from constantly thinking about your problems you know mm-hmm. if there's some little hobby or little activity you know that you like to do and it doesn't have to be big crazy things i mean if you like reading books go to the library and check out books or you know if there's a game you like to play online or you know a chat group or a discussion forum or something like find something that that gives you some purpose and some meaning and it makes you feel good because there might be things in your life that make you feel bad and make you feel like you're suffering, but you still have control to pursue those things that, that make you feel good. Hopefully not everybody, yeah. most people. Yeah. I mean, yep. There are some people that have some exception, you know, some, some situations that they really don't. Right. But many do. Yes, for sure. Yep. For sure. Cool, man. Thanks again. Thank you. I never know how to end these other than saying, thank you. I hope your days and weeks are good or at least okay that's my wish for you yeah well i think it's one of those things where like i said before you can have concurrent good things Mm. along with bad things i don't know it's not really a trick but to try to don't totally ignore the bad things like Mm. recognize and accept they're there but try to focus on the on the good things and that's life and that's life and that's a good ending right there. I like that. Dot, dot, dot. And that's life. Boom, boom, boom. All right. Thanks again, man. I'll, uh, I'll connect with you soon. Appreciate it. Thank you.
Okay. Thank you, Sean. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. And special thanks to David in Virginia. Thank you, David. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com or on Facebook or Twitter at SuicideNoted. And help us out if you listen on Apple, rate and review this podcast. It really helps people find it. And I think there are some people out there that need to find it. Thank you so much. That is all for episode number 93 Stay strong, do the best you can. I'll talk to you soon.